also check out champagnesharks.com to find all the links you need related to the show you can find the merchandise you can find the patreon page you can find anything you need the youtube page and different links yeah so also for people who want to go and find out about the merchandise that's probably one of the easiest ways to find it is to go there and yeah it's basically what you need to know we have shirts mugs and notebooks and all types of good stuff there so go to champagnesharks.com and that's like your one-stop shopping for links for anything to do with the show so yeah youtube page soundcloud page merchandise page all that good stuff and without further ado let's get to the show so we have with us um dr judson brewer or as he likes to be called dr judd and what we what happened is um, the co-host and I had been talking a lot about stress and meditation and things like that. And around the time that I was talking to the co-host about those topics, I had started this app called Insight Timer. The first thing I tried was something by our guest. It was a course on the app, our guest today, um, Dr. Judd. It was really good. It was a couple days in a row. Then I went and I bought his book, uh, The Craving Mind. Then I tried a bunch of his talks on YouTube and I've actually pre-ordered his next book. So that's how much I liked what I read and heard. So I wanted to have him on. And uh, Dr. Judd, if you don't mind introducing yourself, letting people know um, who you are, what your specialties are and where they can find you, that'd be a great place to start. I'd be happy to. And thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. I'm the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. I'm also the Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at ShareCare. And people can find me most easily on my website, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com, as well as they can can hit me up at Twitter, at Judd Brewer, at J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R. And if... uh, If they like what they hear, as you mentioned, I've got a new book coming out uh, called Unwinding Anxiety, which unfortunately is really relevant right now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a, but you know what? I got a feeling we're going to be in this for a while. So I think Mm -hmm. it'll still be timely, unfortunately, when it, when it does come out. But yeah, we could have really used it um, even earlier. Here, here. Yeah. But um, the thing that really, The thing that really jumped out at me when I was um, listening, it was a pretty basic kind of observation, but a profound one at the same time was the difference between stress and anxiety, because it's kind of a thing that I myself, and I'm sure I'm not alone, a lot of people use interchangeably. And you made a pretty good distinction um, between the two. And I was interested in hearing you elaborate on um, both the difference between stress and anxiety and also the concept of is just such a good thing as good stress and bad stress or good stress and bad anxiety or if, or if those are a myth. Yes. So, you know, this this took me years to really differentiate the nuanced differences between stress and anxiety. You know, I didn't learn it in medical school. I didn't learn it in my psychiatry residency training, but certainly had a lot of patients coming into my clinic who were stressed out. And I had a lot of patients coming into my clinic who were anxious. And I had a lot of patients who were both stressed and anxious. And I think the simplest way to look at this, and also the way that's helped me help my patients the most, has been to look at how these things get set up. You know, so we actually, uh, you can think of stress as something that uh, has a clear trigger. And when we, when we, kind of do something about it, it the stress goes away. And this this actually has very deep evolutionary origins that goes back to us, you know, rem- learning how to find food and how to avoid danger. And I, I can talk about that in a minute, but let's u- just use a clear example of stress and then show the difference between that and anxiety. So let's say somebody has a to-do list that's a mile long. And so they look at their to-do list and they get stressed out. And so you can see how that trigger of looking at their to-do list leads to this mental behavior of getting stressed out. Now, if they do something about it and they go check off their uh, to-do list, then that stress goes away. And so there's a clear trigger 
there's a clear something they can do about it. And then when they do something about it, the result is that it goes away. So this fits the classic definition of, of a habit loop where there are three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So somebody sees their to-do list, they do something about it, and their stress goes away. So there's the result. Now, if they keep doing that, their brain learns to uh, repeat that behavior over and over to, to the point where it becomes a habit, where it's just like, oh, to-do list, get the work done. So how is this different than anxiety? Well, sometimes <laughs> we can have a long to-do list and instead of just, you know, rolling up our sleeves and doing, you know, checking out the items, we start to freak out about it. We start to worry like, oh no, I'm not sure I can get my to-do list done or how am I going to possibly do all of these things? You know, I only have 24 hours in a day or whatever. So here, that same trigger can trigger a different mental behavior of worrying. And as we worry, we get a very different result because that worry doesn't actually direct our energy in a good way. It doesn't help us get our to-do list done. It, it burns up that energy where we're just, you know, just running around worrying about stuff. It's compared to directing that energy toward getting the to-do list done. So that worry can have a very different result, which can then feed back and then lead to more anxiety, which then can trigger more worry. And then we get spinning out and tightening down into this little tiny ball of anxiety, which is really different than stress. And there are times I have a lot of patients who wake up in the morning and they just wake up and they say, I just feel anxious. There isn't even a clear trigger where I just feel anxious. So a lot of differences between, you know, how stress and anxiety are perpetuated, but the feelings, the physical sensations can often overlap quite a bit, which is why I think it's really hard to tell the difference between the two of them sometimes if we just look at those feelings. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And uh, when I was hearing you talk about it, a thing that came to mind is that there's a sense of helplessness with anxiety that's a little more pronounced than with uh, stress, because there's something you can actually point to to do to kind of alleviate the stress, whereas the anxiety, there's very much a feeling of, of helplessness that I think must be very debilitating and then adds to more anxiety. It was very, I mean, am I on the right track? Absolutely. Or, I okay. think it, it can be very debilitating, yet it doesn't have to be. Mm. <laughs> but yes, I think for a lot of people, especially if they haven't even seen how this process works, they have no idea how to work with it. You know, if we don't know how our minds work, how can we possibly work with our minds? So that's actually one thing that I start with my patients with, you know, when they first come in for an intake, the first thing I do is start to help them map out their own anxiety habit loops. Uh, I can give you an example if that's helpful. Of course. So I had a patient who was referred to me for anxiety and <laughs> didn't take long. He walked in the, in the door of my office and I could see that he was anxious, you know, so check anxious. <laughs> but when we, when he sat down and I started taking his history, he started describing something really interesting, which was, he said, I, when I'm driving on the highway, I start to have these thoughts of I'm in a speeding bullet. Those were his words. I'm in a speeding bullet. And he started to freak out and worry that he was going to get in an accident and hurt somebody. So you can see he, we, we mapped this out together. His trigger was these, these thoughts like, oh no, I'm going to hurt somebody. Then he started developing this behavior, which was to avoid driving on the highway. And then the result of that behavior was that, you know, he didn't, he didn't have, he could avoid those, those freaky thoughts, but there were other results that came with that as well. You know, he was really limiting his functioning and long story short, he met all the criteria for panic disorder, which it goes way beyond, you know, he'd had some panic attacks, but it goes way beyond just having panic attacks. It's when we start to worry about having future panic attacks to the point where it affects our behavior. So here's an example of somebody who he had no idea how his mind worked. And within a couple of minutes, we had already mapped out how he was driving, <laughs> literally driving these habit loops, which were also leading him to avoid driving uh, in the real world. One thing that um, helped me when I uh, first listened to you was I was kind of curious myself about what, how much stress versus anxiety do I have? And I spent a day listening to you just write down every single thing that I could do um, mm. to relieve, relieve my stress with the idea that 
whatever's left over is my um, anxiety, which is kind of a crude way of going about it. But I just was writing and writing. And I made about three lists of things that I had, I mean, three pages of things that I had to do, uh, just like free associating, just, just writing every single thing down and committing it to paper. Mm-hmm. And then I realized when I was done that just the act of that, of having it externalized on paper and committed to paper, got rid of a lot of my tension. But there was still some left mm-hmm. where I was like, I imagine this must be what I would still feel even if I got all this done. Like somehow putting it on paper made it seem more conquerable or able to be managed. But there was still something where it's like, even after writing all this down, I still feel a little bit of tension. I imagine this is probably what I would still be feeling even if I managed to get all this stuff done. I had started, you know, kind of meditating. I haven't done a great job of doing it every day, but I've been trying to, and I've noticed that kind of anxiety going down. Um, I was curious what happens in meditation, as far as you can tell, that reduces anxiety, as far as the uh, mechanism or the feedback the feedback loops that are disrupted. I was wondering if there's a way you could describe how it works, because I don't know how it works either. I just know that it does seem to be working. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting that simply being able to externalize those things helps, you know, when we can, and it's kind of like the devil that we know versus the devil that we don't know, you know, when something is just illuminated, it's a lot less scary than we, when we're not aware of what's happening and we're just, we're just nervous or anxious or stressed. Yeah. So, so that's really nice. And I'm glad you asked the question about what's going on because my lab has actually just finished a couple of studies looking to see what mindfulness training can actually do to change anxiety. So we were very interested kind of really understanding the mechanisms. And the way I think of it is the theory is that mindfulness helps us. And mindfulness can be a a strange concept. So I'll just break that down into concrete terms. I think of mindfulness as awareness, but that awareness has a certain quality, a certain characteristic of, of an attitudinal quality of curiosity. So basically, we're paying attention to what's happening, but we're also being curious. We're not judging it. We're not assuming we know it, what's happening. We're not holding on to you know, things that are pleasant. We're not pushing away things that are unpleasant. We're simply being curiously aware of what's happening right now. So that's how I think of mindfulness. And the theory is that mindfulness doesn't necessarily change anxious thoughts or worry thoughts or the feeling of anxiety, but it can change our relationship to it. Okay. So it can help us not get caught up in anxiety as much. That's the theory. So we wanted to test that theory. We developed an app called Unwinding Anxiety, um, <laughs> also the name of, of my forthcoming book. Um, but the this app was set up to give people systematic mindfulness training, 10 minutes a day, 30 core modules, you know, some theme weeks after that to help them really understand how their minds work, map out these anxious habit loops, and then also learn to change their relationship to their feelings, to their thoughts, to their emotions. Okay, so that's what we designed. We uh, did this study. We did a study first with anxious physicians, and then we did a study with people with generalized anxiety disorder. So I think of people with generalized anxiety disorder as the, the Olympians of worry. They're really good <laughs> at worrying, you know. They've, they've grooved that habit p- pretty well. And what we did was we, so with the anxious physician study, Uh, We just did this single arm trial to see if it would work. And we found that lo and behold, there was a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. And we were blown away. We We were just hoping that physicians would try this out. We did it specifically with physicians because a lot of physicians don't feel like they have time to practice mindfulness. So we wanted to give them something that they could do in bite-sized pieces, they could bring into their daily life. And lo and behold, it it reduced their anxiety. It also reduced something that we didn't even mention in the app, which was burnout. And so we had hypothesized that anxiety and burnout were correlated, and we found that they were. We also found that as people learned to work with their anxiety, they also lowered certain aspects of burnout. So that was really interesting. But getting to the mechanism now, so we saw a signal, you know, close to 60% reduction in three months. We were happy with that. When we did this second study with people with generalized anxiety disorder, we randomized people to get their usual clinical care or to get that plus this 
learning anxiety app. And we could embed some measures where we could ask them as they went through the program about uh, basically we could check to see if they had acquired mindfulness skills. And we could also see if their worry changed. And long story short, we found that only in the people that got the mindfulness training, so not in the control group, they increased their non-reactivity, which is a subscale, an aspect of mindfulness. Remember, mindfulness is about not getting caught up. So we, we hypothesized that they would be less reactive to their thoughts and emotions. They were less reactive. And we also found that that decrease in reactivity mediated a reduction in worry and that the reduction in worry mediated a reduction in anxiety. So mechanistically, what we were finding was that people became less reactive, right, changing their relationship to their thoughts and emotions. As they became less reactive, both their worry and their anxiety went down. So it it confirmed the hypothesis that, you know, mindfulness really can help help people change their relationships to their thoughts and emotion. And we could see this, you know, in a randomized clinical trial. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. In these folks, we saw a 63% reduction in these clinically validated anxiety scores. So these folks, they were doing gangbusters with uh, the ability to reduce their anxiety. Now, this was only in the group that got mindfulness training. The other group, they only reduced their anxiety by about 15%. And that was, you know, with, with standard clinical care. Does that make sense in terms of the mechanism that we were starting to identify? Oh, yeah, it totally does. Um, A quick question I have to you about the study. How did you guys measure the level of anxiety and worry? Was it like fMRI or something else? Was it self-reporting? Yeah, in this study, so the gold standard measures for worry and for anxiety are self-report measures. So there's this measure called the Penn State Worry Questionnaire that's kind of gold standard for worry. And there's a measure called the GAD-7, the Generalized Anxiety Disorder 7 measure, which is used in clinics across the country and probably across the world to uh, track you know, the degree uh, of anxiety that somebody has you know, generally in the last two weeks is, is how the questionnaire is, is worded. Uh, but funny you mentioned fMRI because We've been studying brain changes related to meditation for, you know, for over a decade now. We even had Anderson Cooper from 60 Minutes come in and and meditate on camera when we were measuring his brain activity. Here we were using uh, EEG neurofeedback, but we can actually identify specific brain regions that are activated with anxiety. A number of labs have, have shown that. And these brain regions that are part of this network of brain regions called the default mode network, they get activated when people get caught up in, in worry, and they get deactivated when people are meditating. So we could see this in real time. We had Anderson Cooper think of a time when he was anxious. The thing actually went off the charts. <laughs> you mm. could see on the screen, it was like above, above the limit that we could measure. And then we had him meditate. And you could see in real time, you could watch that brain region get really quiet. It was very, very cool to see. It's impressive he can just access that as well, because I feel like I'd have trouble accessing a time I, w- I was anxious just because I have such a bad relationship to anxiety. Like Just to tap into it, I, I think would be hard to even let my, my mind go there. So in certain respect, I'm very impressed with that. Uh, yes. Now, I don't want to presume that I know Anderson Cooper's mind, but <laughs> the way he, we, we had we, we got to talk for a long time uh, while he was visiting my lab, and he was talking about all these places that he you know he had reported on the Iraqi War, and he'd been all, in all these places that were very anxiety provoking. So he could think of a time, <laughs> you know, he had plenty of, of uh. times in his memory of when he was anxious, and so he could you know they're pretty vivid, so he could access them. And the other thing was, and we didn't know what was going to happen when he came to the lab. We he had been meditating hardcore for the last month in preparation for this 60 minutes story. And so by the time he came to our lab, he had been practicing so much that we could see very, very clear drops in his brain. I wouldn't say that that was, that that would be the case for everyone, (laughs) but it was, it was really interesting where he was just, you know, he was in fuego. He was, he was really rocking it. You know something interesting about uh, your work, right? When I first encountered it, I was thinking of it as two distinct, two distinct specialties. One being, you know, stress and anxiety, and how mindfulness treats it, and addiction 
and craving, maybe how mindfulness treats that. But as I dove into it, I kind of started realizing that they're very connected and overlapping. It's not really two different topics at all. In fact, what was interesting is when I was encountering it, I was like, okay, well, I'm interested in the stress and anxiety stuff. The addiction stuff, not so not so much uh, because, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't really get hooked on drugs. I'm not hooked on things. But I was going through the anxiety and stress and mindfulness things that you were talking about. And when you talked about trigger behavior, then the result and the how that forms a habit, you know, which far as I could tell a habit can turn into a, an addiction, you know, I realized that I actually am addicted to a lot of stuff through stress. Like for example, like social media, what they call doom scrolling, which is like that night when you can't go to sleep. So you're just on Twitter scrolling and scrolling with no clear goal in sight. You know, uh, and I was like, yes. uh, it's actually, designed that way. Yeah, 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 it's exa- yeah. I would love for you to talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So I was kind of realized, okay, wait a minute. I actually am interested in the addiction stuff at all. Like, like listening to all your talk about the anxiety and stress stuff and the triggers and the behaviors and the habits, I started realizing uh, there is something very tied to addiction uh, with all this stuff. And addiction is probably the number one way people self-soothe and it's not always um, an addiction to positive stuff. Yes. Yes. And so let's, I'm glad you, you're interested in this because this has been fascinating journey for me. You know, I, as an addiction psychiatrist, I started doing all of my labs research, looking at habit formation around addictions and how mindfulness could help. So, you know, our first study we did with alcohol and cocaine use disorder. We found that mindfulness was helpful. We did then did a study with smoking cessation and found that mindfulness was, you ready for this, five times better than gold standard treatment uh, for smoking cessation. And then we started doing all this neuroimaging work to see what was actually happening in the brain, you know, blah, blah, blah. So as I was really identifying, you know, seeing what was, what were critical elements here, this habit loop came up. And, I, and it was re- really fascinating because, you know, this is an evolutionarily conserved mechanism. Even the sea slug learns the same way that humans do, not that sea slugs smoke, <laughs> but <laughs> you get the idea. Yeah. And so when I was looking at the smoking thing and we were developing this app for smoking called Craving to Quit, we actually had some of the pilot testers say that they were changing their eating habits. And at first I made an assumption, a very (laughs) non-mindful assumption, which was, oh, they're probably substituting eating for smoking because that's what I typically see in my clinic. And on average, uh, somebody gains about 15 pounds when they quit smoking because they'll substitute eating for smoking as a way to, you know, still perpetuate the habit, but just have something that's ideally a little healthier, though obesity is not very healthy. But these people were saying that they are actually cutting down on their snacking. And that blew me away. And I said, wow, what is going on here? So that's when I started to realize, oh, this is this evolutionarily conserved thing. People eat, they stress eat, they emotionally eat, they eat when they're bored in the same mechanistic way that people smoke. You know, somebody's bored, they're that's a trigger. They eat or they smoke. There's the behavior. And then the result is they distract themselves or they, you know, they're doing something as compared to just sitting around being bored. So, and same for stress, smoking, stress, eating, all that. So I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. So we developed this app called Eat Right Now, uh, did some studies with it. There was a study published back in 2017 led by Ashley Mason at UCF, show, UCSF showing that that we could actually get a a 40% reduction in craving-related eating just using an app-based mindfulness training program. The reason I mentioned that is because a lot of the people using our Eat Right Now program were saying that their eating was driven by anxiety. And it was only then that this light bulb went on in my head. And I said, wait a minute, could anxiety be driven in the same way that eating is? And lo and behold... 30 years of research, there's a guy, uh, T.D. Berkovec at Penn State, who led the charge here showing that anxiety and worry in particular can be reinforced in the same way that stress eating is. So that's when we developed this Unwinding Anxiety app and started studying it and even looking to see, you know, across the population, if anybody uses it, if they download it from the app store or something like that, will will their anxiety go down? And, and even on large population levels, we see large reductions in anxiety. So, you know, it, it my interest in anxiety 
stemmed just from following this thread of anxiety and habit loop formation. Not because I was particularly interested in anxiety, but now I am super interested in anxiety. That's why I wrote this whole book on it, because I learned so much about how anxiety is formed as a habit. And it's not really talked about very much in every day, you know, when people say they're anxious. They just don't know that it can be driven. So if I'm understanding you, you started more with the interest in addiction. And Mm -hmm. then by working your way backwards, you kind of got into anxiety. Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting because came to your work from an interest in anxiety and then it got me interested <laughs> in um, addiction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and, and that's interesting with the addiction thing is, uh, like I said, before I wasn't really thinking myself as being someone who needed to think about addiction because I'm thinking of the stereotypes of cocaine, alcohol, these different things. But mm-hmm. when I was listening to your work and I started realizing, yeah, the internet, social media can be an addiction, but something in your work that, and I want to make sure I'm not misunderstanding or misconveying your point. So by all means, uh, interject if I'm saying anything wrong. You seem to be saying uh, that worry and anxiety itself can be an addiction. Is that correct? And if so, can you unpack that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. It is correct. Uh, And I don't know if you can hear me smiling through the microphone, but I think you really nailed it. So if you I don't know if you remember from my uh, the Craving Mind book, but I learned this very simple definition during my residency training of what addictions are. So the simple definition of addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. And that's why I wrote a bunch of different chapters. I was so blown away by this simple definition because I started to see it not only in my patients' lives, but I started to see it in my own life. You know, so there's a, there's a little bit of a confessional as, as, I, as you, people read through the chapters because I talk about addiction to social media. I talk about addiction to thinking. Man, I was so addicted to thinking. Like uh, addiction to distraction, even addiction to love, you know, where romantic love fires up some of these same pathways as uh, when we get caught up in other things. So yes, <laughs> anxiety can be can be an addiction if we think of it as continued use despite adverse consequences. And I would say, so let's unpack that a little bit. If you think of uh, anxiety triggering worry, worry as that mental behavior, there's the continued use despite adverse consequences. Because you can think of planning, right? So planning is helpful. <laughs> That's what our brains are really good at doing when we're not freaked out. Yet, kind of, you know, planning once is helpful, maybe planning twice just to make sure we haven't missed anything. But you can see how that kind of gets, it can get overblown where we can get out of control and we start over planning and overthinking and then start worrying about all the possible worst case scenarios that could happen when the likelihood that they're going to happen is close to zero. But that doesn't stop our brain from doing it. So you can think of, you know, anxiety itself is tends to be this feeling. But if you look at the definition of anxiety, you know, it it's really predicated on worry, you know, basically worrying about things with an uncertain outcome, basically worrying about the future. So that worry piece is the thing that we do mentally that has adverse consequences, continued use despite adverse consequences, because worrying doesn't actually help us plan. And in fact, when we worry too much, our prefrontal cortex goes offline. We can't actually think and plan. So it gets in the way of the aspect of our brain that, you know, that it's kind of linked into in the first place. So there's that definition, you know, it fits the definition of addiction, continue just despite adverse consequences. Worry is not helpful. But why does it feel helpful? Like, like <laughs> yeah. so it does kind of feel uh, it does. helpful. Yeah, you ready for this? So this has actually been studied. So this is Borkovec and others have shown that worry can serve several functions, quote unquote. One is it distracts us from unpleasant emotions. So, uh, you know, if we're feeling really afraid or really anxious and we start worrying, that worrying might feel less bad, let's say, than the fear. And so in, in a relative sense, it's rewarding because it's less bad than being freak- completely freaked out. The other thing that it can do is it feels like we are in control when we're worrying because even if there's something with an you know, uncertain outcome, 
well, at least I'm worrying about it. So at least I'm doing something about it. So it feels like we're actually in control, even though worry doesn't actually help the outcome and can actually lead us away from solving problems. Yeah, it now, definitely gives an illusion of control. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one of the big aspects of worry that people don't notice that where it's like, well, uh, you know, if I worry about my kid, you know, not getting in a car accident when they're out late at night, is that going to actually help them not get in an accident? No. What's it going to do? Keep me from sleeping. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yep, exactly. Like your your book, the um, chapters include addicted to technology, addicted to ourselves, addicted to distraction, addicted to thinking, <clears throat> addicted to love. And as I was going through it, I was noticing um, kind of indirect or other type of addictions that I had that were kind of falling into a lot of this stuff. And one, for example, that I was having was uh, buying books, but mm. buying books at a rate faster than I could ever read them in a lifetime. And at some point when I was reading <laughs> your book, I was kind of realizing, wow, this is an addiction like I have. And I, I looked at the books and I did a little um, experiment with myself. I took a couple of days. I took all the books, right? And I jumped to the last page of every book and I made this Excel spreadsheet because, you know, with quarantine and stuff, I have time to do stuff I normally would never um, have. So mm -hmm. I just sat down with this and I had this total pages. And then I said, okay, long would it take me to read all these pages in a lifetime? And I just kept entering. I made a little spreadsheet. <laughs> oh, I love it. With I a love division. It. <laughs> and I was adding different day days and different, like, I'm like, if I want to read this in 10 years, how many pages a day would I have to be? And it would keep coming up with these exorbitant, ridiculous numbers. And the more I looked at it, I'm like, this is really ridiculous, all these books I have. like, I'm, And I can't read them fast enough. I cannot read them fast enough to get through this in a lifetime. There's something else happening here. And there's some kind of anxiety reduction that happens from, A, shopping for the books and browsing through them. As I realized, it's not really reading the books. There's some weird relationship I'm having to them mm -hmm. that it gives me a sense of control over something. Like I was kind of realizing from reading your book, all these things that this thing can apply to that we don't necessarily think of. And like you said, you have things like addicted to thinking, addicted to love. And I was thinking there's probably so many things we can um, tie this stuff um, into. And it was definitely more anxiety than stress because I don't even think reading the stuff would was even reducing anything. And I ended up getting rid of a lot of stuff. I got rid of over mm. like half my books. And the anxiety that produced was very interesting. Just getting, <laughs> rid, just getting rid of them, even knowing that I wasn't going to be able to. Uh, but it lifted a giant weight off me somehow at the mm -hmm. same time. Like it was like having a bunch of homework just um, slashed in half or by two thirds. Wow, that is so interesting. So tell me if you can relate to this. The analogy that comes to mind when you say this is when we are constantly looking for that perfect relationship. And so we date this person, then this person, then this person, then this person. And our brain keeps saying, if I just do more of this, I will find the perfect person. Yet, if we don't look at our ourselves and we see, wait a minute, I've got to start with myself, you know, and if we've got something that, that we need to, you know, work on or resolve ourselves, we're never going to find that perfect person. And I think the same is true with, you know, I see this in the self-help industry where it's almost designed to tell people, oh, just read one more self-help book, just read one, and this will have the perfect formula. Or somebody's trying to lose weight, just do this diet, and this one will do it where all the others fail, but this one will do it. And none of these actually get at the core mechanisms of of kind of contentment, of happiness, of all of that. And if we just look inside and start to understand how our own minds work, we can realize, oh, this isn't, these books are just brain candy. And candy yeah. just gives us a sugar rush and says, wow, that was good, read another one. Oh, that was good, read another one. As compared to looking into our own direct experience where, you know, it's like <laughs> whole food, plant-based diet or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's not sugar because experience is where we develop our own wisdom. So for example, you may your Excel, your major Excel spreadsheet, and you learn something from your own direct experience. Like, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm caught up in this this brain candy rush of just reading a bunch of books, and it's not going to help. So there's your wisdom, and then you did something about it by getting yeah. rid of half the books. That's great. Yeah, and it's and like I said, it wasn't even just reading it. Like I think part of it was reading it, but there was something about the sensation of like the hunt for it. And I'm sure this probably the same thing with. Um, 
drug addicts. Like, I'm sure yep. it's not just the actual smoking of the drug, but there's probably a whole chain events that happens after the trigger, like finding the finding their dealer, um, meeting him, the exchange. I'm sure there's a level of addiction to the whole process leading up to the snort of cocaine or the drink of the um alcohol like you know going to your favorite bar sitting down with your favorite bartender and starting to drink away or if your preferred thing is to buy a 40 ounce of beer and bring it back home and drink yourself to oblivion like there is that kind of chain of the trigger the behavior and whatever and it a lot to do with um same with um, porn. Like I was uh, found this guy's page because when I was um, reading your stuff and started doing searches on YouTube for like addiction and stress and anxiety, I found this whole thing of people who were talking about addiction to porn too. And that seems to be mm-hmm. a really big thing that's debilitating people. Like this guy had a huge YouTube channel dedicated to just that and yeah. nothing and nothing else. And he was saying the same thing. He was like, um, if you break the chain... That And it was very similar to what you were saying, you know, the trigger, the behavior, and the result. And it applied to my books. I would have three or four favorite bookstores that I would like to go to, my favorite sections in the bookstore. And, you know, uh, it would all kind of lead to... It would start even before I even read the book. I wouldn't even always have to read the book. Yeah, the anticipation. Anticipation. Thank you. Thank you. I could not think of the word. Thank you. Anticipation. Yes. It's that anticipation that really, (laughs) and like you're saying, that can last a lot longer than the actual event. So think of, you know, that dating analogy I mentioned earlier, you know, somebody goes on a date and there's that anticipation of that first kiss. Well, you know, that could last for hours. It could last for weeks. And that kiss certainly isn't going to last for weeks yeah, <laughs> or and, even and hours. The kiss, and the kiss could be disappointing too. Like you it might, could, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The fantasy can actually be more fulfilling sometimes than the, than the reality. And that yeah. probably has a lot to do why why people who are addicted to love or addicted to these things have to move on once everything is made real. One thing I found, I found something very interesting. Someone said when I was um, researching things after reading your book, someone said that uh, knowledge is additive, but wisdom is uh, subtractive. And I find that kind of interesting, the idea that, because I did feel like there was some kind of search for knowledge uh, in all my accumulation of books, but uh, I felt... I had to hit a certain level of wisdom to realize that I don't need them and to get to get rid of them. I love that knowledge additive wisdom subtractive. You know that gets at this this core maxim this thing called Occam's razor. So in medicine we learn this idea that the simplest explanation is usually the right one, you know. So if we're trying to figure out what the diagnosis is for a patient, usually the simplest one is the <laughs> is the yeah. is the right one. And wisdom certainly helps there. You know, I find that it really helps, it certainly helped myself personally and helps my patients to just kind of map out these habit loops. And it simplifies their lives so much because they can just see how much they're driven by this simple three-step process. And once they can see that, they can start to step out of it as compared to, I need to be in therapy for multiple lifetimes <laughs> or buy you know, this self-help book as compared to the last one. So I think I love that. you know, Wisdom is subtractive because we realize we don't need all this extra stuff. And it's just making things more complicated, overcomplicating things perhaps when the simple answer is usually the right one. And something I was thinking of when I was uh, consuming your stuff, too, is even things like therapy or self-help books or, you know, things like that, I think, depending on your relationship to them, they don't really have to be bad if you're not using it as part of this um, habit or addiction loop, but just something you, you know, choose to do in, in moderation without, you know, using it as a way to escape from yourself. But I think at the end of the day, you kind of have to evaluate your relationship to stuff. Because like, I mean, I still like to read a lot, but the idea of collecting the books as a compulsion or reading as an escape from my feelings was, I think, the problem. And yeah. To a certain level, I have to kind of stay vigilant about that, about like, what am I, am I lapsing into using it? But I'm sure there are some things that probably can't work, 
even in moderation. Like, and I kind of want to get your take on the idea of moderation. And and some people believe in I have to quit drinking or all these things, cold turkey. And then some people believe actually, you know, things can be okay in moderation. I was wondering what your ideas were about that or your research. Yes. Talk to you about that. Yes. So I certainly, in my clinic with my patients who are addicted to things, I certainly take a harm reduction approach, which is not being adamant about, you know, you have to not use X, Y, or Z. What, what folks need to do is be able to find where they're tipping over into continued use despite adverse consequences. So for example, with smoking, we don't have to smoke to survive. But with eating, you know, we have to eat. We've got to get calories in and we're going to waste away. So here, eating is a really good example because people have to learn to, you know, if they're overeating and they're, you know, they're very obese or if they are stress eating and they're, you know, they're just eating a bunch of junk food and it's not healthy for them, they've got to kind of see this for themselves. So let's use this example of so my patient who I described earlier, who had panic disorder. He also was 180 pounds overweight. And what I did was I had him go home and map out his anxiety habit loops for two weeks. I gave him our unwinding anxiety app and said, you know, had him download it and say, try this out. Two weeks later, he came back and he said, you know, doc, I lost 14 pounds. And I was a little shocked because we hadn't even talked about weight loss then. We were going to focus on his anxiety first. But he said, you know, I mapped out these habit loops and I realized that stress eating wasn't actually helping my anxiety. So I get anxious. There's the trigger. I would eat. There was the behavior. And the result was I actually felt bad about myself because I know I need to lose weight. And so over the course of six months, simply by paying attention and getting curious about that, he lost over 100 pounds. And I say this because he wasn't trying to force himself to lose weight. He tried that before and it didn't work. But what he was doing was looking at how rewarding that behavior was. And this is how our brains work, is our brains are going to keep doing behaviors if they're rewarding. They're going to stop doing those behaviors if they're no longer rewarding. So we actually, my lab um, has done a study on this where I embedded this craving tool in our Eat Right Now app so we could look to see how quickly people start to moderate, for example, their eating behaviors, how they, how quickly they, they move from overeating to not overeating, for example, by simply paying attention to how rewarding the overeating is. So we have them go ahead and eat the way that they normally would, but we have them pay attention as they do it and then check in with themselves to see how satisfied they feel afterwards. Generally, people don't feel satisfied when they're overstuffed. You know, uh, it, you know, they get this bloated feeling, they feel sluggish, and they feel guilty about overeating if they're trying to lose weight. It only takes 10 to 12 times of, of people using this craving tool in, in our Eat Right Now app to actually shift that reward value to below zero, where they now have shifted their behavior. So here, moderation can naturally come as we start to see the results of our behaviors. So you can't change a behavior simply by telling yourself to stop doing it. Otherwise, <laughs> every patient that came in, I would just say, stop smoking, stop overeating. And then I would send them home and they, they wouldn't need to see me. Yeah, yeah, willpower. Yeah, it's more a myth than muscle. So here, it's about tapping into these brain mechanisms. And if reward-based learning is the strongest mechanism known in science for learning, why not use that? So we can actually hack that system and simply have them update that reward value so that they become disenchanted with these old behaviors. My patients come in when they're smoking and I say, go ahead and smoke. And they come back and they say, wow, that tasted like crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh <laughs> You know, you know, it's funny in the meantime, I don't know if you can hear all this background noise. I'm going to have to cut it out in uh, editing, but I guess they just called the election for um, Biden. So people outside my window are honking their horns and screaming <laughs> and yelling. But I mean, in real time, I feel like that's kind of an example of uh, a couple of days of anxiety that societally we were having. And now people are feeling like a big release. But that's a that's a real time example of uh, anxiety being being released. I can hear it through my my noise canceling headphones. <laughs> well, that, that I can hear it a little bit as well. That's a, so that's a wonderful example. Our brains hate uncertainty. 
right? And no matter what side of the aisle we're on, our brains hate to know, you know, even if the, if we know the answer is not going to be good, we still want to know the answer so that that uncertainty can go to zero. And uncertainty drives anxiety. I even put a short animation out on my YouTube channel about how coronavirus anxiety is really driving people nuts because, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And I, the found same you, is, I found you during the uh, peak of my coronavirus uh, anxiety. It drove me to finally start the meditation habit. I kept claiming I was going to start, but never did. Well, I'm glad you found it uh, because it sounds like it's been very helpful for you to map out your own mind. And I think that's something that we all can do is, you know, just see what type of habit loops do I have? How rewarding are they? I have people ask a simple question. What do I get from this? So they can map out that cause and effect relationship. What's the behavior and how rewarding is it? Not intellectually, like I shouldn't smoke or I shouldn't overeat, but like really feeling into their direct experience. And that in itself may be enough for people to change behavior. As I mentioned, you know, we we have pretty strong results, whether it's smoking or overeating or even anxiety from some of the studies that my lab has done. Yeah. And, you know, we're approaching the end of our time. And one thing that I wanted to not do, because I originally had like pages and pages of notes, I was really enjoying your stuff. And I realized I don't want this to be the type of interview where people, you know, can just use it as a substitute for or think they can use it as a substitute for, you know, exploring the books or your uh, speeches. So I wanted instead of um, drilling down into all these aspects of your book instead of tell people you know please um read the craving mind and please pre-order the addiction book i kind of want to instead talk a little bit about your relationship to this stuff as far as how you came across um mindfulness if you and also like your industry and and how because i know now as far as with traditional science and everything mindfulness is very in vogue and it's there's a lot of studies being done by you and by other people about the actual tangible uh, benefits and there's like scientific deconstruction but did you come across it through um, medicine was it something in vogue or rising in popularity in medicine at the time or did you find it through something totally different like buddhism and you were ahead of the curve as far as the rise of its use in in uh medicine and also in addition as another aspect of that question do you find there's a difference or it's helpful to incorporate the spirituality of buddhism in it, in it as well as opposed to practicing it in a more secular um way because i because you seem to have a little bit of connection to um actual buddhist doctrine as well as opposed to a purely secular uh, understanding of mindfulness yes uh, great questions so i started it was in the mid 90s uh, that i started meditating it was actually my first day of medical school that I started meditating because I'd gone through a, a tough relationship breakup and was feeling stress. I was suffering myself. And so I was looking for something to help me with my own stress and suffering. So I started meditating, you know, and found, wow, this is, <laughs> this is good stuff. And over the course of the next uh, eight years, as I did my MD, PhD program, I actually shifted my entire research career from studying molecular biology, to studying mindfulness. And it was in the early 2000s uh, when I started, you know, I went started going through residency that I sh retooled and shifted my career to studying neuroscience, doing neuroimaging, doing clinical trials. And it was only then, in the early 2000s, there were virtually no papers published on mindfulness. So it wasn't very popular then. I would say it was only in the last 10 years, probably really more the last five years, that mindfulness has really blown up in popularity. And I think a lot of that has come from the research showing that mindfulness is actually scientifically based. So, you know, in, in the West, we kind of have this religion of science, you know? Yes. <laughs> and so that's that certainly helped uh, because people, you know, people are like, oh, it's science says it's true. It must be true. I'll try it. Now, it's interesting going back to this Buddhist origin piece. I When I started meditating, I read a book, John Kabat-Zinn's Full Catastrophe Living, started listening to his cassette tapes, if you remember what those are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then... I started practicing in a in a local community in St. Louis. I was at WashU in St. Louis for grad school. And I found that 
the uh, the Buddhist doctrine or the Buddhist psychology was really compelling from a, a scientific standpoint because it it was it really laid out a lot of theory about you know this and that. And I actually published a paper over about ten years ago now where I, I published this with uh, a, a Pali scholar, like a Buddhist scholar, showing that there are direct parallels, like really, really strong parallels between the Buddhist concepts of how suffering arises and the modern day concepts of reward-based learning. So, it, you know, I would suggest, and I think, you know, if you look at the, the Buddhist doctrine, you know, the Buddha wasn't Buddhist and he actually, you know, it said on his deathbed that he told people, he said, don't believe me, try this for yourself. And so, some describe him as a super scientist or a psychologist or a doctor more than some religious figure because he was saying, don't believe stuff. Check your own experience. Your experience is more is more believable than Dogma. putting blind felt faith in something. Yeah. So so I would say, and certainly culturally, there are a lot of cultural aspects that have become, you know, more based on you know, rites and rituals and things like that. But that's not what the original Buddhist doctrine suggests. It, it suggests, well, check your own mind out and see how it works. So that piece has been really mind-blowing for me. And so in that sense, uh, you can think of, yes, I followed the Buddhist doctrine because it was really rich. And you know, it, it lines up beautifully with my, what my lab is finding scientifically now. It's kind of like we're, we're showing more evidence for what they predicted way back before paper was even invented. Yeah, that's one thing that <laughs> jumped out at me was that it wasn't like um, people kind of think of who haven't really experienced it themselves as it must be some kind of new age woo where they imagine Buddhism must be like, the secret, like a former type of magical thinking, but um, it's actually a very deep inquiry and, and experimentation uh, process through someone's lifetime. And you had a paper that I found where you talk about dependent origination and you kind of tie in this Buddhist doctrine of dependent origination to uh, the actual scientific and psychological findings that, that you've done. And you kind of show that's very compatible i was like very curious about that but i also feel like it's probably something that's not easy to just break down in the last couple <laughs> minutes of an, of an interview but i would recommend people if they can track down that paper yeah and i actually highlight that i think in the first chapter of the craving mind as well uh, the key concepts there yeah i mean at the end of the day i want people to check out your actual uh stuff firsthand so yeah definitely uh check that out and the I'm trying to think what, because I have a lot of stuff that I could I could talk to you all day. So I want to try, try to figure out what I want to um, end it end it on. Uh, but uh, uh, most importantly, thanks for coming by. And the last thing I would probably ask you is the idea of the positive sides of um, anxiety and or stress, because uh, you talk about something. I think this is what I would like to probably end it on is uh, the idea of being identified with uh, anxiety. And I find that to be an interesting idea mm -hmm. that you can actually start to become identified with it. And I imagine being identified with it probably has a lot to do with believing that I need this. This is um, good for me. Like, who am I without my anxiety or, or worry? Or it's, or it's the reason why I'm successful or it's the reason why my life isn't worse. If I'm not successful, at least it would be worse if I wasn't um, vigilantly worrying all the time. And I was curious if we want to end on... Um, with that question. I'd be happy to. You know, this is fascinating because this this specific question led me to research a whole bunch of stuff for my for my new uh, book on anxiety, you know, the Unwinding Anxiety book. And specifically, I'd been getting a lot of questions from people about performance anxiety as well as I'd seen people in our in our uh, program so identified with anxiety that they didn't feel like they could step out of it. So long story short, and there's a whole lot more about this in the book, is there's this myth between the link of performance anxiety uh, actually helping us perform well. So if we uh, are anxious before we perform and we perform well, we can make this connection where there's a correlation, uh, anxious, true, performed well, true, but they're not necessarily causally related. It doesn't mean that anxiety caused us to perform well. And in fact, 
there's uh, there's this thing called the Yerkes-Dodson law that is actually not true, that is kind of this meme now on the internet that was based on some study in the early 1900s on Japanese dancing mice, suggesting that there's some optimal level of arousal that actually helps performance. That has been, that has not been replicated, <laughs> especially not in humans. The, the correlation is the more anxious we are, the worse we do, period. So there's one piece that that has kind of been this myth that has even led to people writing books and all this stuff that's not actually true. The the <laughs> so the other piece is with this identification, we can be so identified with anxiety that we have no idea that we can step out of it. And that's a really key insight for people to realize is oh, anxiety is made up of thoughts, emotions, sensations, period. It is not me. And the more I can see I can observe anxiety the more I can actually be not identified with it. And that that uh, distancing, that perspective taking helps me already start to step out of it. You know, they, they call this in physics, the observer effect. By observing, you affect the results. The same is true here. When we observe anxiety, we are less identified with it and less caught up in it. Yeah, and the final thing that I will say is um, from reading your work and also like um, doing my own investigation, I've kind of come to realize that there is kind of a paradox that one has to do. Like, you know, for example, the whole knowledge, additive, wisdom, uh, subtractive thing, which is um, if you start with nothing, then you have nothing to subtract. So there is a necessary function to gaining knowledge or thinking like you know uh, to unwind thoughts you kind of have thoughts like the idea isn't you know that one shouldn't you know ever think about things or gather knowledge or use your intellect you know like but when you just overdose on it and you uh never do the subtractive process like like you kind of have to have stuff distill down to um wisdom in the in the first place it's just sometimes we get stuck on the accumulation of thoughts the accumulation of worry and turn that into a compulsion or or an addiction and that's kind of one of the paradoxes i've been finding is that to learn how to unwind my thoughts or think less or to um get rid of books i had to actually listen to someone's um, studies, read someone's books, um, think about learning how to think less. And that's something uh, that I find to be a very interesting uh, paradox. But it's a paradox that puts you in danger of lapsing into the same uh, trap again. But, you know, I just wanted to get your um, thoughts about that. The paradox of having to read books, to learn, to read less, to think about the thoughts, you know, so that you can think less and things like that. So here we have to sift through the books that are actually going to be helpful in terms of helping us not be addicted to reading more books. And unfortunately, you know, the the vast majority of books, I, my opinion, are not actually tackling that. And so here, you know, it's going to be hard for people to find what is actually helpful. So here, I would suggest for people to look and ask themselves, is this helping me not only understand my mind intellectually, but is this helping me look at my own experience from a direct experiential perspective? And am I gaining wisdom? The more we gain wisdom, the more we realize we don't need to read books and the more we can let go of them. So that's where I would say find the books that can actually lead to that direct wisdom through experience, not ones that just say you have to understand this concept. And then people, you know, they'll they'll find it for themselves. I think what's great about what you said, too, is it totally applies to meditation. Like, you know, you have a bunch of thoughts, but sift through the thoughts that are helping you and the ones that aren't. And, um, you know, learn to discard the ones that aren't actually helping you. Same with the emotions that um, arise. So, yeah, it seems to be a consistent thing across the board. Um, thanks so much, Dr. Judd. And if there's anything that uh, you want to plug that we haven't so far, I mean, the craving mind from cigarettes to smartphones to love, why we get hooked and how we can break bad habits. Um, definitely check that out. It's great. It's an audible book as well as a um, physical book. So depending on your preference, there's Unwinding Anxiety, which comes out, if I'm correct, in March 2021. 
That's right. Yeah, and the subhead title of that, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. Of course, that one I have not read yet, but uh, based on everything else I've digested from you, I'm sure it's going to be as great as ever. And anything besides those things that you want to um, mention before we go? Uh, if folks are, you know, want, uh, they're anxious about uh, coronavirus, uh, I put out a bunch of videos. I think you mentioned them on YouTube so they can check those out. Just uh, YouTube and search Dr. Judd. And other than that, uh, we've got a bunch of free resources on my website, uh, drjudd.com. And I just want to thank you for having me. This has been really lovely. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Likewise. Oh, also, because I know someone's going to ask me this. Um, the app that I discovered uh, Dr. Judd on was Insight Timer. So he has um, a course on there about anxiety that uh, got me to try his other his other stuff. So, yeah, you don't have to a email me to ask me that. That's, that's the name <laughs> of the app. And I think that covers everything. Thanks, Dr. Judd. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and take care. My pleasure. Take care as well.